Hello. Hello. It's infinite cast time. Hello. Hello. Sorry. Time to cast. Time to cast. Uh, welcome back to Infinite Cast, the podcast, the cast that reads for you. Where the po- uh, the everything is made up and, and the, the points, points don't, don't matter. matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, where where the the listener count is immaterial because the show's not monetized. <laughs> Where we can say whatever we want because we're unfiltered and uncensored. A hundred percent real. Yeah. This is what podcasts stop being nice, polite, polite and, and start, start being, being real. real. Do you think Foster Wallace ever watched the real world? Yes, I do. Did he ever write about the real world? Nah. Uh, Chuck Klosterman wrote about the real world. Uh, yeah. He wrote something really great, which is that he pinpointed it was one of the very early seasons. I, I don't know if you're familiar. Do you know Puck? Yeah, I remember. Puck. I know that Puck was a social force. I've watched yeah. the first season of Real World just out of curiosity about yeah. it, but I've not watched all the early seasons. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, it, he basically pinpointed that Puck season was basically Puck knowing that he was on a reality show uh-huh. and trying to game. beef up, you know, game it in order to get like airtime and to create, you yes. know, conflict so that it would then get televised versus, you know, the original concept of the real world was a much more naturalistic. It was like people trying to be real. Yeah. And he was like, there is no real world. We're on television. And guess who was correct? Puck, yes. He was the first fully, fully self-conscious, fully realized reality, reality star. And reality every every re- every other reality star has been born in his yes. in his image. Yes, to to varying degrees. You put girls on the tennis screen today. Yeah, what? we never watch girl tennis. All right, I love it. Was, it. it was the second thing uh, recommended to us. Okay. That's a very... It's Rybakina versus Sabalenka. Sabalenka. Uh, the one woman has a very intricate tennis outfit yeah like a skirt over an overskirt yes it's weird that they make them wear skirts i know they should just they should be able to wear whatever they want yes here's the thing i actually think you maybe can wear whatever you want but there are like you know norms like every other sport yes it's it's like it her outfit looks like she has a a sweatshirt tied around her waist you should be able to wear like rave clothes basically yes like a full like unitard bodysuit yeah if you feel like it whatever makes one of those see-through mesh (laughs) bodysuits yeah like pasties (laughs) yeah with like um you know like garter like fake garter tights uh here's a pitch rave tennis (laughs) <laughs> so the, on one side they have the monitoring booth and on the other side there's a DJ booth and then lighting I love that I think the disco disco tennis yes. galactic tennis galactic tennis yeah um, alright should we start reading let's do it Gately's cognomen growing up and moving through public grades had been BIM or BIMI or the BIMulator <laughs> etc from the acronymic BIM big indestructible moron <laughs> this is on Boston's North Shore mostly Beverly and Salem His head had been huge even as a kid. By the time he hit puberty at 12, the head seemed a yard wide. A regulation football helmet was like a beanie on him. His coaches had to order special helmets. Gately was worth the cost. Every coach past sixth grade told him he was a lock for a Division I college team if he bore down and kept his eye on the prize. Memories of half a dozen different necklace, necklace, buzz cut, and pre-infarcted coaches all condense around a raspy emphasis on bearing down and predictions of a limitless future for Don G, Bimmy G, right up until he dropped out in high school's junior year. Gately went both ways, fullback on offense, outside linebacker on D. He was big enough for the line, but his speed would have been wasted there. 
Already carrying 230 pounds and bench pressing well over that, Gately clocked a 4-4-40 in seventh grade, and the legend is that the Beverly Middle School coach ran even faster than that into the locker room to jack off over the stopwatch. Oh, God. <laughs> and his biggest asset was his outsized head, Gately's. The head was indestructible. When they needed yards, they'd shift to isolate Gately on one defender and get him the ball, and he'd lower his head and charge, eyes on the turf. The top of his special helmet was like a train's cow catcher coming at you. Defenders, pads, helmets, and cleats bounced off the head, often in different directions. And the head was fearless. It was like it had no nerve endings or pain receptors or whatever. Gately amused teammates by letting them open and close elevator doors on the head. He let people, <laughs> he let people break things over the head. Lunch boxes, cafeteria trays, bespectacled weenies, violin cases, lacrosse sticks. By age 13, he never had to buy beers. He'd bet some kid a six he could take a shot with this or that object to the head. His left ear is permanently kind of gnarled from elevator door impacts, and Gately favors a kind of long-sided Prince Valiantish bowl cut to help cover the misshapen uh -huh. ear. Yeah, picture this guy that we've been talking about for two years with a t an absolutely terrible haircut. <laughs> well, you know what? I wasn't really imagining him with a good haircut. That's true. Sure. I was, uh, yeah. One cheekbone still has a dented violet cast from 10th grade when a North Red, I don't know if it's reading or reading, kid at a party bet him a 12-pack on a shot with a sock full of nickels and then clocked him under the eye with it instead of the skull. It took Beverly's whole offensive line to pull Gately off what was left of the kid. The juvenile line on Gately was that he was totally jolly and laid back and easygoing up to a certain point, but that if you cross that point with him, you better be able to beat a 4440. <laughs> He was always kind of a boy's boy. He had a jolly ferocity about him that scared girls, and he had no idea how to deal with girls except to try to impress them by letting them watch somebody do something to his head. <laughs> he was never what you'd call a ladies' man. At parties, he was always at the center of the crowd that drank instead of dancing. It was, a surpri it was surprising, maybe, given Gately's size and domestic situation, that he wasn't a bully. He wasn't kindly or heroic or a defender of the weak. It's not like he stepped uh, kindly in to protect weenies and misfits from the predations of those kids that were bullies. He just had no interest in brutalizing the weak. It's still not clear to him if this was to his credit or not. Things might have been different if the MP had ever knocked Gately around instead of focusing all his attention on the progressively weaker Mrs. G. He smoked his first Dubois at age nine, a hard little needle-thin joint bought off junior high N-words, and smoked with three other grade school football players in a vacant summer cottage one had the key to, watching broadcast televised N-words run amok in a flaming LA, CA, after some finest got home-movied, crewing on an N-word in the worst way. So wow. Gately was born in about, in probably what, like 1979? Yeah, ninety two is Rodney King. I think so. And he's nine, so um, I can't do math. I'm sorry. I'm an oh, idiot. Wait, he's eighty three. Wait, wait. He's he's said he's nine years old in nineteen ninety two. Uh, yeah. So eighty eighty three. Okay. Sorry. So I thought that was thirteen years old. Wow. So he's like five years five years older than me. Yeah. Uh, then his first real drunk a few months later after he and all and the players had hooked up with an Orkin man that liked to get kids all blunt on screwdrivers and that wore brown shirts and jack boots in his off hours and lectured them about Zog and the Turner Diaries. Oh, yikes. While they drive. I'm unfamiliar with this stuff. Zog is, of course, Zionist occupied government and God, the Turner okay. Diaries is a uh, revanchist. Uh, basically, like violent, paranoid fantasy of 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 
white, you know, basically white supremacist defense. If yeah. my memory is correct, it's, it's basically like what, a, from what era? Like the fifties or sixties. Okay. It's like it's so basically post like a World War Two. Yeah, post World. It's basically like a, a a zombie apocalypse book, but it's about when the black people yeah, take yeah, yeah. over uh, America and you have to violently fight back as your honorable white man. Great. Uh, so uh, that guy would be a, a Nazi. Yeah. Um, while they drink the OJ and vodka, he bought them and look at him blandly and roll their eyes at each other. <laughs> Soon, none of the football players Gately hung with were interested in much of anything except trying to get high and holding air guitar and pissing contests and talking theoretically about exing big-haired North Shore girls and trying to think up things to break over Gately's head. <laughs> they all had, like, domestic situations, too. Gately was the only one of them truly dedicated to football, and that was probably just because he'd been told over and over that he had real talent and limitless futures. He was classified attention deficit and special ed from grade school on, with particular deficits in language arts, but that was at least partly because Mrs. G could barely read, and Gately wasn't interested in making her feel worse. And but there was no deficit in his attention to ball or to cold foamers or screwdrivers or high resin Dubois, Debois, or especially to applied pharmacology. Not once he'd done his first quaalude. Wow. Which takes us to EndNote 362. Lucky. AKA Methaquilone, now manufactured outside Onan jurisdiction under the trade name Peristol. Back to the text. First quaalude at age 13. Just as Gately's whole recall of his screwdriver and Cincimilla beginnings tends to telescope into one memory of pissing orange juice into the Atlantic, he and the blunt, cruel Beverly players and bullies he partied with drinking whole quarts of throat-warming OJ at a shot and standing ankle-deep in grit on a North Shore shore facing east and sending long arcs of legal pad yellow piss into <laughs> onrushing breakers that came in and creamed around their feet, the foam warm and yellow shot with their piss, like spitting into the wind. Gately at the podium had started saying it turns out he was pissing on himself right from the start with alcohol. <laughs> That's all in a parenthesis. Uh, in just the same way, the whole couple years before he discovered oral narcotics, the whole period 13 to 15 when he was a devotee of Quaaludes and Heffenreffer brand beer collapses and gathers itself under what he still recalls as the attack of the killer sidewalks. <laughs> Quaaludes and Heffenreffer also marked Gately's entree into a whole new, rather more sinister and less athletic social set at BMS, one member of which was Trent Kite, which takes us to EndNote 363. We've, we've met Kite we before. Later, one-third of the rent and strip luxury apartments crew, and even later, Gately's trusted colleague on some of his most disastrous and bottom-hastening home invasions, including that of one G. Duplessis, which Kite ended up regretting exponentially more than Gately did once the AFR got through with him. That's what we find out happened to... Uh, uh yes. Is that, tr is that um, Trent Quovadis Kite? Yes. Okay. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, Trent Kite... Back to the text. A dyed-in-wool laptop-carrying weenie, chinless and with a nose like a tapir, and pretty much the last <laughs> fanatical Grateful Dead fan under age 40 on the U.S. East Coast. Not oh, anymore. Buddy, you wish. Whose place of honor the in the sinister... The dead are back in a big way in yeah. the under 40 set. Uh, whose place of honor in the sinister Beverly Middle School drug set was due entirely to his gift 
for transforming the kitchen of any vacationing parents' house into a rudimentary pharmaceutical laboratory. Okay. Using like barbecue sauce bottles as Erlenmeyer flasks and microwave ovens to cyclize OH and carbon into three ring compounds, synthesizing methyl methylene dioxypsychedelics, which takes us to endnote 364, MDA, MDMA, X, MMDA2, Love Boat, MMDA3A, Eve, DMMDA2, Starry Night, etc. Interesting. <laughs> Back to the text. From nutmeg and sassafras oil, either ether from charcoal starter, designer meth from tryptophan and L-histidine, sometimes using only a gas top range and parental farberware, able even to decoct usable concentrations of tetrahydrofruin from PVC pipe cleaner, which at that time, best of British luck ordering tetrahydrofruin from any chemical company in the 48 contigs six pro- slash six provinces without getting paid an immediate visit by DEA guys in three-piece suits and reflecting shades. And then using the tetrahydrofruin and ethanol and any protein binding catalyst to turn plain old Salmonex into something just one H3C molecule away from good old biphasic methaquilone, a.k.a. the intrepid quaalude. Kite had called his quaalude isotopes quovatus, and they were a great favorite uh-huh. for 13 to 15 year old Bimmy G and the slouched, sharp haired, sinister set he dropped lewds and quovatuses with washing them down with Heffenreffers, resulting in a kind of mnemonic brownout where the entire two-year interval, the same interval during which the XMP found somebody else, a Newburyport divorcee who apparently put up a more sporting fight than Mrs. G and decamped in his sticker-covered Ford with his Siemens bag and peacoat, the whole period's become, in Gately's sober memory, just the vague idea of the attack, the attack of the killer sidewalks. Quaaludes and 16-ounce Heffenreffers awaken Gately and his new droogs to the usually dormant but apparently ever-lurking ill will of innocent-seeming public sidewalks everywhere. (laughs) You didn't have to be brainy Trent Kite to figure out the equation. Quaaludes plus not even that many beers equals getting whapped by the nearest sidewalk, as in you're walking innocently along down a sidewalk, and out of nowhere the sidewalk comes rushing up to meet you. (laughs) Whap. Happened time after fucking time. It made the whole crew resent having to walk anywhere on Quo Vadis's because of not having driver's licenses yet, which gives you some idea of the sum total IQ brought to bear on the problem of the attacks. <laughs> a tiny permanent cast in his left eye and what looks like a chin dimple are Gately's legacy from the period before moving up to Percocets, which one advantage of the move deeper into oral narcs was that Percocets and Heffenreffers didn't allow you even enough upright mobility to make you vulnerable to sidewalks' ever-lurking ill will. Hey, if you're laying on the ground, you can't fall down. Oh, remember Hal? Yes. Once you're horizontal, you're impossible to knock over. Yes, exactly. Mm. Once you're horizontal, you're impossible. If you're laying down, you can't fall down. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was trying to reference. Yes. No, I I got you. I just didn't remember the proper... Writing. Sorry, you don't have, you don't have the book. I don't have the book. I have the book. <laughs> it's my book. Uh, it was amazing that none of this stuff seemed much to hurt Gately's performance playing ball, but then he was as devoted to football as he was to oral CNS depressants, at least for a while. He had disciplined personal rules back then. He absorbed substances only at night after practice, not so much as a fractional foamer between 0900 and 1800 hours during the seasons of practice and play, and he settled for just a single Dubois on Thursday evenings before actual games. 
During football season, he ruled himself with an iron hand until the sunset, then threw himself on the mercy of sidewalks and the somnolent hum. He used class to catch up on REM sleep. <laughs> By freshman year, he was starting on the Beverly Salem High School Minutemen varsity and was on academic probation. <laughs> Most of the sinister set he'd hung with were expelled for truancy or trafficking or worse by sophomore year. Gately kept hanging in and on till 17. But Quaaludes and Quovadas and Percocets are lethal in terms of homework, especially washed down with Heffenreffer, and extra especially if you're academically ambivalent and ADD classified and already using every particle of your self-discipline protecting football from the substances. And unhappily, high school is totally unlike higher education in terms of major sport coaches' influence over instructors, athletes and grades-wise. Kite got Gately through math and special ed science, and the French teacher was getting her strabismic eyeballs fucked out by the Minutemen's tanned lounge lizard of an offensive coordinator on the behalf of Gately and a semi-retarded tight end. (laughs) But English just fucking killed him, Gately. All four of the English teachers the athletic department tried Gately on had this zigheil idea that it was somehow cruel to pass a kid that couldn't do the work. And the athletic department pointing out to them that Gately had an especially challenging domestic situation and that flunking Gately and rendering him ineligible for ball would eliminate his one reason even to stay on in school. These were like to know like avail. (laughs) Avail spelled wrong. Uh, (laughs) English was his sink or swim situation. What he then termed his water loo. That's spelled like water space and then a guy named Lou. Uh, Term papers, he could more or less swing. The football coach had weenies on retainer. But the in-class themes and tests killed Gately, who simply didn't have enough will left over from after sunset to choose like the crushingly dull Ethan Frum over uh, Quo Vadis and Heffenreffer. Plus, by this time, three different schools' authorities had him convinced he was basically dumb anyway. But mostly, it was the substances. This one particular BSHS athletic department hired weenie of an English tutor, spent a sophomore year marches worth of evenings in Gately's company, and by Easter the kid weighed 95 pounds and had a nose ring and hand tremors and was placed by his frantic functional parents in a juvenile intervention rehab where the weenie's whole first week of withdrawal was spent in a corner reciting Howl in high-volume Chaucerian English. (laughs) Gately flunked sophomore comp in May and lost the fall's eligibility and withdrew from school for a year to preserve his junior season. And but then without the only other thing he'd been devoted to, the psychic emergency break was off. And Gately's 16th year is still mostly a gray blank, except for his mother's new red chintz TV watching couch and also the acquaintance of an accommodating Rite Aid pharmacist's assistant with disfiguring eczema and serious gambling debts. Plus memories of terrible rear ocular itching and of a basic diet of convenience store crud, plus the vegetables from his mother's vodka glass while she slept. When he finally returned for his sophomore year of class and junior year of ball at at 17 and 284 pounds, Gately was enervated, flabby, apparently narcoleptic, and on a need schedule so inflexible that he needed 15 milligrams of good old oxycodone hydrochloride out of its pockets Tylenol bottle every three hours to keep the shakes off. He was like a huge, confused kitten out on the field. The coach made him go in for PET scans, fearing MS or Lou Gehrig's. And even the classic comics version of Ethan Frum was now beyond his ability. (laughs) 
and good old Kite was gone by that last September of unsubsidized time, admitted early on a full ride in comp science by Salem State U, meaning Gately was now on his own in remedial math and chem. On offense, Gately lost his starting spot in the third game to a big, clear-eyed freshman the coach said showed nearly limitless potential. Then Mrs. Gately suffered her cirrhotic hemorrhage and cerebral blood thing in late October. Just before the midterms, Gately was getting ready to fail. Bored-eyed guys in white cotton blew blue bubbles and loaded her in the back of a leisurely sirenless ambulance and took her first to the hospital and then to a Medicaid LTI, Takes us to EndNote 365, long-term institution. Sure. Back to the text. Out across the Ural Beach span in Point Shirley, the backs of Gately's eyes were too itchy for him to even be able to stand out on the red pocked stoop steps and see to wave adios. The first gasper he ever smoked was that day, a 100 out of a half-finished pack of his mother's generics that she left. He didn't ever. He didn't even ever go back to BSEHS to clean out his lockers. He never played organized ball again. Wow. Yeah. Friday night lights. Am I right? Stark decline. Yeah. Uh, Drugs will do that to you. Not not getting the the sympathy pass on English will do that to you. (sighs) You know, I I don't know how you solve a problem like that pedagogically. Yeah. You know, you have you have people, uh, you know, being like, "Sorry, he, lo- you know, he can't read good." <laughs> and and it's another like, person if I, being if like, "If I quit school, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to have a drug problem and die." Yes, like if I don't, if I don't play football, I will die. <laughs> so, um, I don't. Yeah. W- w- where is the priority here? Yeah. I mean, I guess the real thing is that there's no, you know, welfare child welfare system underneath looking out for him yes is that if football is your only stop gap between oblivion yeah what's going on yes football yes football should not be the the only organizing factor in a a young person's life yeah god uh yeah also he doesn't have i'm like his his mom you know has a cirrhotic hemorrhage and goes into a long-term institution he doesn't have any money. Yes. What the fuck? He's like 17 years old. Yes. Jesus Christ. No, uh, no wonder he robs. How much more is the next segment? Um, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. It's like three, four pages. Yeah. Great. That'll be perfect. Back That'll to take how. us to like 30. I may have been dozing. Some more heads came and awaited response and left. I may have dozed. It occurred to me that I didn't have to eat if I was not hungry. This presented itself as almost a revelation. <laughs> I hadn't been hungry in over a week. Never do anything out of hunger. Not, not even, even eating. eating. I could remember when I was always hungry. Constantly hungry. Then at some point, Pemulus's head appeared in the doorway. His strange twin-towered AM cowlick bobbing as he looked back over each shoulder out in the hall. His right eye was either twitchy or swollen from sleep. Something was wrong with it. Yellow, he said. I pretended to shade my eyes. Howdy there, stranger. It is not Pemulus's way to apologize or explain or worry that you might think ill of him. In this, he reminded me of Mario. This almost regal lack of insecurity is hard to put together with his crippling neurasthenia on court. (laughs) Sup, he said, not moving from the doorway. I could see my asking him where he'd been all week, leading to so many different possible responses and further questions that the prospect was almost overwhelming, so enervating I could barely get out that I'd just been lying here on the floor. Lying here is all, I told him. So I just got told, he said. The patropulator mentioned hysterics? 
It was almost impossible to shrug lying supine on thick shag. See for yourself, I said. Hemulus came all the way in. He became the only thing in the room that understood itself as basically vertical. He didn't look very good. His color wasn't good. He had not shaved, and a dozen little black bristles jutted from the ball of his chin. He gave the impression of chewing gum, even though he was not chewing gum. He said, thinking? The opposite. Thought prophylaxis. Feeling a little punk? Can't complain. I rolled my eyes up at him. He made a sharp glottal stop. He moved toward the periphery of my vision and fit himself into the seam of two walls behind me. I heard him sliding down to assume the back-supported squat he sometimes liked. The protropulator was Petropolis Khan. I was thinking of the final film lecture in good-looking men in small, clever rooms and then of C.T.'s misadventure at himself's funeral. The moms had had himself interred in her family's traditional plot in Lille province. I heard a whoop and two crashes directly overhead. My rib cage contracted and expanded. Inkster, Pemula said after a time. A noteworthy thing turned out to be that the mound of earth on a freshly filled grave seems airy and risen and plump like dough. How? Pemula said. Yavul, we've got some really important interfacing to do, brother. <laughs> I didn't say anything. There were too many potential responses, both witty ones and earnest ones. I could hear Pemulus's cowlicks brush each wall as he looked to either side and the slight sound of a small zipper being played with. I'm thinking we could go someplace discreet and really interface. I'm a highly tuned horizontal antenna tuned into you lying right here. I was meaning we could go some uh, I was meaning could we go somewhere? So this <laughs> so this urgency all of a sudden I was trying to make my intonation Jewish motherless that <laughs> melodic dip rise dip all week not a call not a card now I should hear this about urgency <laughs> seen your mums around lately haven't seen her all week doubtless she's over helping CT arrange a weather venue I paused I haven't seen him all week either come to think I said the eschaton's a no go Pemula said the map's a mess out there we're going to get an announcement about the Quebec kids very soon. I can feel it, I said. I'm that highly, I'm that highly tuned in this position. <laughs> let's say, uh, let's skip the sausage analog and whip down to steak and Sunday and eat. Mm, steak. Steak and Sunday. There was an extended pause as I ran a response tree. Pemulus was zipping and unzipping something with a short zipper. I couldn't decide. I finally had to choose almost at random. I'm trying to cut down on patronizing places with N in their name, or as, with N in their name. Listen, I heard his knees creak as he leaned in toward the top of my head about the tu savais quoi. The E day M M A E Z, the synthetic back and all. That's definitely off, Mike. Talk about the map being a mess. That's part of what we need to interface about if you get off your, li your literally your ass here. I spent a minute watching the NASA glass rise and fall. Don't even start, M.M. What start? We're on hiatus, remember? We're living like Shiite Muslims for the 30 days you miraculously blarneyed the guy into giving us. Blarney wasn't why we got it, Inc., is the thing. And now what, 20 days to go? We're going to produce urine like a mullah's babe, we agreed. This isn't, Pemulus started. I farted, but it didn't produce a noise. I was bored. I couldn't remember a time when Pemulus had bored me. And I do not need you launching temptation rhetoric my way, I said. Keith Freer appeared in the doorway, leaning against the jam with his bare arms crossed. 
he was still wearing the weird unitard he slept in, <laughs> which made him look like someone who tore phone books in half at a sideshow. Yes. I want one of those. The, Actually, the, you know what? The one-shouldered one unitard. Ha- I have one of those. I have a, a garment that is like, it's black and it's like thick tank top. It, does it only it have one? Shorts. Does it have one shoulder though? No, but I could take one off. You oh, wait. Let's one. It's a shoulder. disturbing garment. I've only worn it um, after going to the beach. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking. It's about. not attractive. I'm sorry. I'll try. I'll get. I'll try to get more brave. All right. But I need one for men. So just look up sideshow strongman's onesie. S- strongman's onesie. Let Let me see if they still make these. Just so go on clown. Clown, uh, closet. Clown net. closet. net. <laughs> does someone have? Does somebody have an explanation why there's human flesh on the hall window upstairs? He said. Yes. Uh, we're conversing here. Pemulus told him. I half sat up. Flesh. Freer looked down at me. This is nothing to laugh at. I don't think. How there's? I swear to fucking God, a human strip of forehead flesh oh. upstairs on the hall window, and what looks like two eyebrows and bits of nose. And now Tall Paul says down in the lobby, Stice was seen coming out of the infirmary wearing something out of Zorro. (laughs) Pemulus was completely vertical, standing again. I could hear his knees as he rose. It's like a -a tete-a-tete in here, brother. We're in here bunkered. Manoa. Stice got stuck to the window, I explained, lying all the way back down. Kankel and Brant were going to detach him with warm water from a janitorial bucket. Pemulus said, how do you get stuck to a window? Well, from the looks, it looks like they detached half his face from his head, oh. Freer said, feeling at his own forehead and shuddering a little. Kieran McKenna's little porcine snout appeared in a gap under Freer's arm. He still wore his stupid full-head gauze wrap for his supposed bruised skull. Did you guys get to see the darkness? Gopnik says he looks like a, pe- a piece of cheese pizza where someone tore the cheese off. Oh, no. Gopnik oh. said Trolch is in, in charging two bucks a look. He ran off toward the stairwell without waiting for a reply, his pocket jingling madly. Freer looked at Pemulus and opened his mouth, then apparently reconsidered and followed off down the hall. We could hear a couple of sarcastic whistles at Freer's unitard. Pemulus reappeared at the top of my vision. His right eye was definitely twitching. This is what I meant about going someplace discreet? When have I ever urgently asked you to dialogue before, Ink? Certainly not within the last few days, Mike, that's for sure. You know what this uh, dynamic is like? Hmm. Gudetama and um, the, 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 little Kyo, the little chick. Yes. Where Gudetama's like, oh, who cares? The rock girl's dies. There was an extended pause. He's I, also just laying in a, laying puddle, ground, a puddle of himself. Why bother? There was an extended pause. I raised my hands over my face and looked at their shapes against the indirect lights. Pemulus finally said, well, I'm going to go make sure I eat before I have to see Stice without a fucking forehead. Have an analog for me, I said. Let me know if there's word on the meat. I'll eat if I'm going to have to play. Pemulus licked his palm and tried to get his cowlicks to behave. From my vantage, he was high overhead and upside down. So are you going to get up and go up and get dressed and stand on one foot with that opera thing on at some point? Because I could eat and then come up. We can tell Mario we need to mano a tete. Now I was making a cage of my hands and watching the light through its shape as I rotated it. Will you do me a favor? Get good-looking men in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency out for me. It's about a dozen cartridges in from the right on the third shelf down in the entertainment case. 
Cue it up to about 2300, 2350 maybe, the last five minutes or so. The third shelf down, I said as he scanned, tapping a foot. They've got all himself stuffed together on the third shelf. He scanned. Baby pictures of famous dictators? Fun <laughs> with teeth? Annular fusion is our fiend? I haven't even heard of half your dad's shit that's here. It's friend, not fiend. Either it's mislabeled or the label's peeling. And they're supposed to be alphabetized. It ought to be right next to flux in a box. And me using the poor guy's lab, Penulus said. He loaded the player and turned on the viewer, his knees popping again as he squatted to set the cue to 2350. The huge screen hummed in a low pitch that ascended as it began to warm up, the screen taking on a milky blue aspect like the eye of a dead bird. Pemulus's feet were bare, and I looked at the calluses on his heels. He, turned the cart- he tossed the cartridge's case carelessly on a couch or chair behind me and looked down. How big do you imagine the cartridges being? DVD size, I guess. V- VHS? I think of them as like Game Boy games. Game Boy, small, like squarish. Squarish, yeah. Sure. I can see that. Or are they like mini discs? I mean, the way they're described, it sounds analog enough to like. Yeah, it's more of a tape than a mini disc. More of a tape than a disc, I would say. But at the time, like mini disc was such like a futuristic seeming technology. Maybe they're mini discs. Maybe I'll start thinking of them as mini discs. A combination between a mini disc and a cassette tape. But I think the word cartridge is crucial that I almost imagine it the size of like a pack of cigarettes or something. Yeah. But I plug into like a. I, I guess I think of Game Boy cartridges because that is the most cartridge-like piece of entertainment so that I've ever used. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck's Fun With Tea supposed to be about? I tried to shrug against the friction of the carpet. Pretty much what it says it's about. The funeral had been held on 5 or 6 April in St. Adelbert, a small town uh, built around spudge storage facilities fewer than five clicks west of the Great Concavity. We'd all had to fly up by way of Newfoundland because of the volume of waste displacement launches that spring. And commercial airlines hadn't yet had data on high-altitude dioxin levels over the concavity. Cloud cover prevented our seeing much of the New Brunswick coast, which I'm told was a mercy. What happened at the funeral service itself was simply that a circling gull scored a direct white hit on the shoulder of CT's blue blazer, and that when he opened his mouth in shock at the direct hit, a large blue-bodied fly flew right into his mouth and was hard to extract. Several persons laughed. It was no huge or dramatic thing. The moms probably laughed hardest of anyone. The TP's tracker chugged and clicked, and the viewer bloomed. Pemulus had been wearing parachute pants and a tam shanter and lensless <laughs> spectacles, but no shoes. The cartridge started uh, close to what I'd wanted to review, the protagonist's climactic lecture. Paul Anthony Heaven. All Paul Anthony Heaven. PA Heaven. All 50 kilos of him, gripping the lectern with both hands so you could see that he was missing his thumbs. The sad, dyed strands combed over his bald spot, visible because he had his head down, reading the lecture in the deadening academic monotone that himself so loved. The monotone was the reason why himself used Paul Anthony Heaven, a non-professional, by trade a data entry drone for ocean spray in anything that required a deadening institutional presence. Paul Anthony Heaven had also played the threatening supervisor in Wave Bye Bye to the Bureaucrat. Of course. The Massachusetts State Commissioner for Beach and Water Safety in Safe Boating is No Accident, and a Parkinsonian corporate auditor in Low Temperature Civics. Thus, the flood's real consequence is revealed to be desiccation, generations of hydrophobia on a pandemic scale, the protagonist was reading aloud. Peterson's The Cage was running on a large screen behind the lectern. 
a number of shots of undergraduates with their heads on their desks, reading their mail, making origami animals, picking at their faces with blank intensity, established that the climactic lecture wasn't coming off as all that climactic to the audience within the film. (laughs) We thus become, in the absence of death as teleologic end, ourselves desiccated, deprived of some essential fluid, aridly cerebral, abstract, conceptual, little more than hallucinations of God, the academic read in a deadly drone, his eyes never leaving his lectern's text. The art cartridge critics and scholars who point to the frequent presence of audiences inside himself's films and argue that the fact that the audiences are always either dumb and unappreciative or the victims of some grisly entertainment mishap betrays more than a little hostility on the part of an auteur pegged as technically gifted but narratively dull and plotless and static and not entertaining enough. These academics' arguments seem sound uh, as far as they go, but they do not explain the incredible pathos of Paul Anthony Heaven reading his lecture to a crowd of dead-eyed kids picking at themselves and drawing vacant airplane and genitalia doodles on their college rule notepads, reading stupefyingly stupefyingly turgid-sounding shit. Takes us to endnote 366. Sounding rather suspiciously like Professor H. Bloom's turgid studies of artistic influenza, though it's unclear how either flood or dead ancestor discussions have any connection to S. Peterson's low-budget classic, The Cage, which is mostly about a peripatetic eyeball rolling around. (laughs) Other than the fact that J.O. and Condenza loved this film and stuck little snippets of it or references to it just about anywhere he could. Maybe the disjunction or disconnection between the screen's film and Ph.D.'s scholastic discussion of art is part of the point, uh, which takes us to subnote A, which, of course, assumes that (laughs) that there's a point. Yes. For while Klinemann and Tessera strive to revive or revise the dead ancestor, and while kenosis and demonization act to repress consciousness and memory of the dead ancestor, it is, finally, artistic ascesis which represents the contest proper, the battle to the death with the loved dead, in a monotone as narcotizing as a voice from the grave and yet all the time weeping Paul Anthony Heaven (laughs) as an upward hall full of kids all scan their mail, the film teacher not sobbing or wiping his nose on his tweed sleeve, but silently weeping very steadily so that tears run down Heaven's gaunt face and gather on his underslung chin and fall from view, glistening slightly below the lectern's frame of sight. Then this too began to seem familiar. Totally. (laughs) Yes, okay. What is ascesis? Uh, first, I need to get ascesis in the dome. Ascesis. I assume it's some kind of Greek uh, something. The practice of severe self-discipline, typically for religious reasons. Ah, so like artistic ascesis. Yes. The battle to the death with the loved dead. Okay. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I think. Fighting your dad. Fighting your dad even through death. You got to fight your dad. Revi- revive or revives the dead ancestor and then repress consciousness and memory. Uh, Eskises. Have I ever told my dad theory of, of literature in this in this? You know, uh, we might have referenced it obliquely, but hit, hit us with it. You know, that well, the old canard is, you know, there are only three types, types of stories. What are they? A man comes to, a man goes on a journey. A man comes to town. Is that it? Is it only two? I forget. 
If there's a third one. My my addendum to it is that there are really only two types of stories in the world, which is uh, either a story about fighting your dad or finding a new dad. Yes, this is correct. Uh, and I think that this is cl- fairly clearly a story about fighting your dad. This is absolutely a story about fighting your dad. Um, uh, I'm just thinking of, I'm thinking of J.O.I. and, you know, his religious devotion to whatever craft in the end the craft that made sense to him was not tennis academia or even like lens developing it was film yes and that he was devoting himself to it as a way to speak to his father who was an actor yes all of his all of his stuff seems to revolve there's lots of things obviously going on but the fact that his dad was basically a failed actor whose last act was being the glad, the man from glad, a glad spokesman. Yeah. That he's trying to explore like what is, what is acting? What is, what is being? And how, how can I find my dad again? How can I, how can, and how can I fight my dad? Yes. I mean, I guess a lot of this is like how to communicate because there's also that whole bit about how, how feeling like he's speaking, but his dad telling him that no words are coming out. And now he's he's communicating with his dad and he's communicating with his son. Through his son is watching his his dead dad's movies. Yes. At this moment of crisis when he's truly like he's questioning his entire existence, his own devotion to tennis. So I mean you referenced this uh, yesterday. So the idea is that the, Hal has somehow been inadvertently dosed with uh DMZ. Uh okay. Are you ready for are you ready for this? I'm not sure. You know, we've got like I mean, 80 we, pages should left. Should we just like let it roll roll out? I mean, it feels silly to like spoil what we'll probably read in like two two sections. I can't remember if we do read it. So I don't I don't think I don't think we can spoil it. But anyway, I think you can take at least from a cue that Pemulus is is strongly trying to talk to Hal mm-hmm. about the DMZ. Yes. And, uh um and Hal is not like getting that, so uh-huh. that the DMZ is in play. That's all I will say. Okay. Um, that being said, Hal has started to feel weird since before the concept of the DMZ has been because he's been play. on weed withdrawal. Because he he's having a basically a psychedelic experience, possibly having a psychedelic experience from withdrawing from weed. And of course, we have to think about uh, his first act, the first thing that we see Hal yeah. do, which is my son ate this. Yes. <laughs> my help, son ate this. Help. My, my son s- ate this. Uh, oh. Um, you brought up something yesterday, uh, last week. Mm-hmm. This is away from the text that we read this week, but um, about how it's it's very annular of the book to be ret- starting with mostly end notes about pharmac- pharmacology mm-hmm. and ending on that. It yes. makes me curious what the exact middle uh, end note is. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I can put down, if you want to vamp, I can put my microphone down and flip with both hands. And uh, yeah, let, let maybe see if you can find it really quickly. Like, So what you would fi- figure out how, would you do that numerologically or whatever the end note is from like the exact middle of the... What's half of 388? Uh, that would be 150, 88, or... Uh, 194. 194, I think so, yeah. I'm just doing it numerically as opposed to... To, like, what's the one from the middle section of the book? Oh, my God. I've, I have I have my microphone on my tummy, and it's rumbling. I'm oh, no. Sorry. It's a fine. Sorry. It's, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a nothing, you know. It's it's a nothing. Uh, it's 194 is a totally different thing than Volkman's contracture, which I think they're referring to... Um, 
uh, Pat Metesian's, uh post stroke uh, alcohol induced stroke uh, like uh, Def- posture. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so I don't think it has any meaning in that sense. But I mean, that would be that would be wild if there was uh, you know if there was a, basically a climax in the middle of the end notes. So I guess it makes sense in that the first section of the book was the Motley crew that all ends up at ETA, Kate Gomper, mm-hmm. uh, Ken Erdetti, so uh, Tiny Uo. So we're talking about various substances that mm-hmm. can be abused. And now we are specifically talking about Don. Yes. And Don's various substances. Yes, because his background. this book is finally, we've spent this long finding out what kind of guy Don Gately is and what his bottom is. Yes. Um, once he's been incapacitated. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's true because we don't get any backstory about Don until we meet him at the, uh, and then his backstory comes at the end. His main thing is that we know that he did the robbery. Oh, yeah. We see wrong. him do the robbery. Yes. I feel like that's his, his first real act is that he is a, you know, sequestered in um, Edit House, alcohol and recovery, drug, drug and alcohol recovery house, uh, no, knowing that he has done something really bad by accident, but also that is the result of a series of choices. Uh, and that wasn't even uh, that wasn't even his bottom. I don't think. Yeah, I I, I think he he did other that didn't stop him I th- from robbing. Yes, I think one of the most fun things about any kind of potential media adaptation to this is mm-hmm. how you would do the showing, um, showing Joi's films because totally. I I think that they would have to be really weird and inventive, and I think. Off the top of my head, how you do it is you probably have like one cinematographer for like the rest of the movies and then try to get like Roger Deakins or somebody, you know, like what to shoot Roger Deakins. He's like one of the best working cinematographers. He shot like every movie that you you think is like beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. You get get like a like a, you know, you you know, you'd work with somebody you you think is good and, and has a good visual idea, but then like get like a top tier cinema cinematographer to just like absolutely go wild on each of them i could also even see special effects uh taking a big part in it in that well, like you would want to do it all of, with lens tricks wouldn't you yeah but is that you know in in our in the current film economy are people willing to spend it's not just lens tricks it's like he invented lenses yeah so and you know complex situations with like lighting and mirrors and stuff look and i like, would have no issue doing like uh, CGI and stuff for the uh, giant babies and things, but I think for those like <laughs> short, the feral babies, it's a, or like the f- fucking garbage launchers going off in the background yeah. and stuff like that. Like, but I think for the films itself, you would want to do as much like practical lens experimentation as possible. Yeah, like you would have to actually invest in doing a stop motion puppet show for for Mario's movie. I mean, which would also be really fun to put would together. Be fantastic, you know. Just throwing it back after seeing um, the movie Babylon, uh, which don't don't sleep on that. I'm sure it's like mostly out of theaters. Yeah, now. that movie's good. Uh, uh, but that, the sorry, two, that, movie, that movie is fantastic for the first two uh, two hours and like not very good. For and the yeah, last a one. bit a bit sloggy at the end, um, but, but uh, it ripped. And but the first two hours of Babylon are one of the best movies I've seen in a few years. Yeah, uh, it got me interested in the silent film era, so I uh, I've been reading a book about it and just like. You know, the the ingenuity required, you know, in the first time, just p- that people needed to do like dissolves. Like yes. they needed to actually like change the set and keep the camera still. Yes. And then, 
<laughs> like and have everything like go well so that uh you know and do it on real film so anyway just it's um, it would take a real like almost hobby like hobbyist level like so a real freak to try to make joi's uh movies yeah but, you would have but you you have to get like an absolute film film freak to to just command a whole second unit and just kind of go off and be like, get on your biggest, your most film bullshit, your most filmic yeah. bullshit as possible. Yeah. You would need a budget that was like crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or maybe, I mean, maybe even not a huge budget, but, uh, but time. And yeah, effort. exactly. I, I, that's what I'm saying is like, even if I was like EPing this, I would probably like try to get like a, a it, like hire a cinematographer yeah. to direct and just give them a small budget and be like, you have the entire time of production to just go off and like make these things and just like come back to me and show me what you came up with. Here's the thing. Do you, I, I feel like the one thing you can't do is show what you think the entertainment looks like. Yeah. That's the, that's the other thing is do you actually, sh- I, you, I maybe show like a second of it because you get like that description of like the gauzy thing yeah. and like some woman cooing, but mostly keep it like the Pulp Fiction yeah. briefcase yeah. where you just see the glow of the, the TP cartridge player. I think Margot Robbie could be, make a good Joel Van Dyne. There you, you go. That's you, pretty if good. If you think of a, cla- have I already said this? But if could she of- do a Southern American? Wonder if you change her accent from hey. buttery Kentucky to she to- cha- she changes Dawn, her accent. Don Gately. I- How does she do oh, that? Dawn, oh, I'm Dawn, I'm so sorry you got shot. <laughs> oh, we're all just up in arms about it over at the house. <laughs> uh, my own my own personal daddy uh, back in Kentucky. We were talking about. I, I'm, how I'm very curious of for when this Barbie trailer drops to see if she does if she's stuck in that voice. I guess she didn't know. Um, no, she kind of does the Barb the 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 uh, Harley voice in Babylon too. She d- she absolutely does. Yes. She's she's like a Jersey girl. She's like stuck if she's stuck in that voice. It's gonna be hilarious if she's like, oh, I'm Bobby. Huh. Well, I'm, I just want to know. Um, regionally where is barbie you know barbie was based on a real woman she's from everywhere and nowhere no but barbie was based on a woman named barbara yes but i mean the barbie the doll is is from from any place usa wait i'm sorry i'm i'm reading what she's from biloxi mississippi (laughs) in nome alaska sorry i just opened up the wikipedia article for barbie and i'm shook and shocked barbie's best friend is ken that's her best male friend. I thought that was her boyfriend. I thought that was her boyfriend. He's her best friend. Uh, what the hell? Yes. Wow. Today I was today years old. Barbara Ruth. Ha- okay, Ruth Handler. That's the that's the woman who created it. Where is Ruth Handler from? Ruth Handler is from Jer- Denver, Colorado. Okay. Um. Gosh, she was the. I didn't realize she was like the president of Mattel. I thought she was just the Barbie woman. I mean, I guess Mattel was like formed around Barbie. Uh, in um, 1978, she was convicted of false reporting to the Securities and Exchange Commission. There is no such thing as a good girl boss. Yes. You have to participate in capitalism and that will corrupt you from the yes. inside out. You, Don't trust when a woman starts a business and it's like, this is different because is I'm a woman. Ladies. This one's for the ladies. Don't listen to her. She is doing the same bullshit as the guys. What is that? The the Polaroid from Memento. Do not believe his lies. Do not believe her lies. Do not believe her lies. Sorry. Th- thinks a uh, period underwear. Oh, she was the. Just she was got- honestly the wackiest. The, all those stories about her like tele tele or phoning, videoing into like meetings while she was on the toilet. 
Yeah, gra- grabbing her co- colleagues like tits. She yep. also, I read she she was she blogged, you know, as a CEO, sure. and she <laughs> blogged and was like, I was, you know, I want to talk about my Burning Man experience. I went into the orgy tent with my husband, and we tried to get pregnant in there. Oh my god! And I was like, what? <laughs> there, there actually might be something, some such thing as too much information. It turns out. Uh, anyway, the th- the thinks underwear, you know, girl girl boss panties uh, for your your menstrual times. There's like forever chemicals in there. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, we were talking about Barbie. We were talking about Margot Robbie. Oh yeah, she could play. We jo- were talking about Joelle. Joelle. Uh, she could do it. I think she could do it. Yes, if she can do another regional American accent besides uh uh Fantasyland queens. Joelle is also notable for changing her accent when she becomes Madame Psychosis, though, to a sort it's of true. flat, affectless voice. Um, yes. Uh, so what else? More sad shit about Don. Uh, or Don. Yes. No wonder he ended up the way he he did. I believe he can. He has the uh, the heart of gold, though. He can pull through. It just depends how he gets out of this this hospital kerfuffle. Listen, he's the hero of inaction. He well, yeah, he does he, violence when do- violence is done unto him. Yes. But otherwise, he's basically like a you know a a, jo- a ferociously jolly guy. But now he's in a position where perhaps he can truly change. I believe I believe in him. Maybe yeah. he'll be saved by the love of a good woman. <laughs> ain't that ain't that always the way? It is the way. Oh, oh, Don. <laughs> like my lowest yeah. Family Guy voice. Oh, Don. Oh, Don, stop. Peter, Don. <laughs> Peter. Oh, Don, Kately. <laughs> I can't. Uh, is there is there anything else to talk about? Fighting your dad through the power of cinema. I mean, we are. It, it's like we're in the real home stretch in the last like under ten percent of this novel. Yeah, uh, and just like the whole last like fifty pages or so have just been this back and forth between Hal and Don. So I feel like it's just like kind of circling, circling in in a drain. concentric concentric circle. Yeah, which is not. Look, there's no part of this thing that is bad, but if it's just like, like I'm, I'm also at this point, like, is it like feeling like it's just going to kind of end, you know, which I think is, I guess is the point of it, but you know, I guess, yeah, I, I guess I'm just hoping that there's like one more pop that sequence, you know, there, this book is punctuated by these like, seek like the, these, you know, seek heightened sequences. And I, I guess I'm just hoping for one more that kind of brings it all home rather than just like ping-ponging between these two guys. Uh, you're in luck. There's at least one more thing that happens that okay. is uh, I important. Ima- I imagine that, the, the, that given like how the pacing of this book works, I would imagine that there's at least one more thing and then a little denouement after it, and that'll probably cover cover it. Then we'll, get, we'll continue with this Hal Don back and forth, and then there'll be like, Maybe one other random thing, and then a big sequence that that pops, and then slide into slide into the end where yep. it's kind of the the so what did we learn section? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, is is okay? Yeah. Is okay. That an we're, accurate pres- is, we're gonna we're gonna have some moments where it's gonna yeah it's gonna be lit. I kind of forgot. Um, how, yeah. How he brings it all home. This is this is not gonna totally whimper out. There's there's some there's some uh, set pieces yet to Great. explore. Excellent. Don't don't just I did I 
I, I wasn't. I know, really I know. I, I was know. imagining that there was going to be more, but you know, we we we've kind of just been in in a holding pattern here. Yeah, there's a there's a a few pieces of imagery. Yes, that uh, I still you know I that, are the, kind of my you know what you things that about. I roll I still roll. I'll be around curious, in my brain. like what uh, when we're all done, like what you think about when you think about this when you when like you just hear the words infinite jest, like what are the images <laughs> that come to your your mind first? Yeah, totally. Uh, which we can describe when we're at the end of the story. The mm-hmm. ending. The end of the story. I thought you were going to do the, in the end. Uh, the, what, what's no. the, the Doors song? Yeah, yeah. The ride the snake to the lake. <laughs> ride the snake. Oh, to the lake. Everybody's riding the snake. See, if they, if that was the only thing that the Doors did and they were basically like a proto version of OCs, I would have loved, I would love them. Take the tempo up to like yeah. 160 beats per minute. We got the, uh, the, the, with David Crosby's passing, we got another round of, uh, it's, it's funny that at his death, like the discourse that goes around is really just him slagging off the Doors. Here's the thing. I like the Doors. The Doors are fine. Uh, they don't do anything for me, but I think Jim Raymond Morrison. Zirik on the keys. Okay. Come okay. On. I, th- I I like Jim Morrison as a figure of a certain type of guy, a, fil- a film school guy. Yes, I mean... Never forget that uh, Jim Morrison should have been a filmmaker instead of a... I would, I would rather see a Jim Morrison joint than a uh, <laughs> than listen, listen to, to a Jim music. Morrison song. Uh, Rad the Snake. Though I have to say, you could, Cros- Crosby responding to, you could never play keys like Ray Manzarek with, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great burn. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no the the doors are definitely not the, those those are not one of my guys um i'm not going to be like turn it off and i if i hear them yeah if i hear more than one i will i will be like what else we got ride the snake to the lake i'm a big fan of la woman look at that snake it's so fucking big <laughs> everybody's riding it at all least right, 100 all people right. can fit oh wow we, both, we almost went an hour on this one okay. oh damn and now we're just babbling about snakes okay see you next week bye